Please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. I need to slightly modify the text in your bulletin. I did not get as far as I thought I would. So we aren't making it to verse 20. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16. And we're going to come back to the book burning next week. Uh, So that's something for you to look forward to. I've really been looking forward to this passage. This is one of those passages in the Bible when I come back to it, it cracks me up. You have seven Jewish exorcists getting the pants beaten off of them by one man. It's funny. And there's course, elements of humor. And then you'll see, I mean, there are also elements of horror as well. I mean, this would have been a terrifying experience for them. And this is what I love about expositional preaching, that we can slow down and look at portions of Scripture like this. And we can talk about what's in the text and, and what it means. And today we'll have a couple really interesting topics that we might be the only church in Alcorn County today talking about uh, an exorcism gone wrong and a theology of nakedness. But I trust uh, that it will be fruitful for you. I was reminded of a statement one of my preaching lab professors made one time. I, I went out on a limb and preached a sermon for my classmates from Judges 19. I'm not going to get into Judges 19, but if you know Judges 19, I preached a sermon on it, and my professor said, well, John, I don't know if I should give you a B for bold or an F for foolhardy. So hopefully, hopefully this will not be foolhardy. But here's how I'm going to outline the text. It's very, very simple. We will see true religion and its fruits... And then false religion and its fruits. True religion and false religion and their fruits. So let's pray and then read our text. Father God, I plead for you that you would speak to your people this morning from your word. We know that it is living and active. We know that it is truth We know that in it is light and life. And so would you speak to your people from your word this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text is Acts 9. We'll begin in verse 11 and read through verse 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The Apostle Paul is in Ephesus. He's begun his third missionary journey. Upon arrival to Ephesus, he found some disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul informs them that the Messiah that John was preparing everyone for had come. And Paul speaks to them about the Lord Jesus, and they believe and they're baptized and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke says in verse 10 that Paul will stay in Ephesus for two years and that all the residents of Asia will hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I need to note that that is not the Asia you are thinking of. When we hear Asia, we think of China, Korea, Japan, Malaysia, Vietnam, those, those countries. The, the Asia Luke is speaking of here is the western portion of modern-day Turkey. And this, of course, makes sense because this is where Ephesus is located. But, but we see that there's more simply going on than Paul reasoning in the synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. We're told in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Who is doing the work? God is. God is working. He's doing extraordinary miracles, things that cannot be explained, things that don't naturally happen in this world, things that are supernatural. That's what miracles are. That's what makes them miracles. You have occurrences where the only explanation is God has done this. We're told by Luke that God is working those miracles through Paul. God is the actor. Paul is the instrument. And this is interesting. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit's power is so potent in Paul at this time that even pieces of fabric that touched his skin could be taken to those who were sick and they would be made well. I was reminded of Luke 8, a story you've heard before, I'm sure. Jesus is in a crowd of people, and they're pressing in all around him. And there's this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. She's seen doctor after doctor. She's spent all her money. No one could heal her. And she's desperate. And she's heard about Jesus, that he gives sight to the blind and causes the lame to walk and casts out demons. And Luke tells us that this poor woman had faith. Enough faith to approach Jesus from behind in the crowd 
and simply reach out and touch the edge of his robe. Because she knows that will be enough. And it is. We're told that immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And then Jesus says, who touched me? Peter says, what are you talking about? We're in a crowd full of people. Everyone's touching you. And Jesus said, no, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And then the woman comes up trembling and she falls down before Jesus and said, it was me. And I've been made well. And Jesus blesses her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I think something like that is happening here with Paul. I had a note in my ESV study Bible which said the Holy Spirit was pleased to manifest his powerful presence so strongly through Paul that the Spirit's presence sometimes remained evident in connection with objects that Paul had touched, i.e. a handkerchief or an apron. It, It pleased God that in this unique time in redemptive history, when the foundations of the church were being laid, it pleased him to give a measure of power to Paul that was so great that pieces of cloth that carried Paul's sweat and scent could be taken to those who were sick or demon-possessed and they would be healed. Now, the, in church history... We see that people have taken this and just gone wild with it, which is what we normally do. It's especially prevalent in the Roman Catholic world. If you've heard about relics, maybe there's, you can go to a cathedral and see a jar of someone's blood that's supposed to have special healing powers, or someone will have the spear that was thrust into Jesus' side, and possessing it is is a benefit because it has some lingering effect and power. Or someone will have a a splinter from the cross of Christ that you can go and and visit. Now, we do have aprons and handkerchiefs that are doing incredible things in this passage, but that is not something prescriptive for us. We aren't going to engage in uh, superstitious nonsense. Right, So relics are a no-no today. But at this time, in redemptive history, this is what we see was happening. Not only are people being healed from diseases, evil spirits are coming out of people. We'll see this in a moment. And I know I've already used the term exorcism. When you say that word, you have to be careful Because there's a lot of cultural baggage attached to that word, isn't there? Thanks to certain movies and books. And we don't want Hollywood to inform our theology. So what we're talking about is Paul calling upon the name of Jesus for someone to be relieved of the power of darkness that is afflicting and controlling them. There's a person who is being afflicted, controlled by a power of darkness. 
Paul calls upon the name of Jesus for that power to be removed, and then it is. That's what we see. It's probably not as dramatic as Hollywood makes this, but it's what we see in our Bibles. This is not uncommon. You remember just when we think about Acts, we've seen Simon the Magician in Acts 8. The Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus on the island of Cyprus in Acts 13. There was the slave girl fortune teller in Philippi in Acts 16. There have been numerous examples that we've seen so far of powerful forces of pagan magic. And we'll get to this more next week when we talk about the books that are burned. But you have a religion connected to demonic activity. And yet, these people and the unclean spirits associated with them are confronted with the total superiority and power of the Holy Spirit. It is never a contest. It is never close. There is never some yin-yang balance or struggle between darkness and light. We see the power differential between these evil spirits and the Holy Spirit in that a handkerchief that had touched Paul's skin could not only heal diseased people, but that hanky could also drive away evil spirits. These spirits do have power but they, that, that they're able to exercise over individuals but they are no match for the Spirit of God. This is the true religion whose author and founder is the Lord Jesus, and we see its fruits. What are the fruits we see? We see life. We see healing, human flourishing, relationships restored, the sick being made well, the power and dominion of Satan receding. Uh, Satan's strongholds in the human heart falling by mere words or handkerchiefs. You have thralls of the enemy being made children of God. And, And as I was thinking through this, there were certain passages that came to mind. Passages like David's words in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. That is the true religion. John the Apostle speaks of it when he's speaking of the Lord Jesus. He says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Paul speaks of this as well in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, he says, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he says, I suffer, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Those are the fruits we see of true religion. We see the Lord of light and life. And it is heartbreaking as you watch a society run defiantly further and further away from their creator. You see the opposite of this. You see darkness and death celebrated instead of life. Unwanted children are aborted and burdensome elderly citizens are euthanized. Life expectancy declines. Human relationships are severed and they become hostile. And at the end, you're left with isolated, spiteful people. I was listening to a podcast this week and a guy made an observation I thought was very interesting. He did some imagining in the parable of the prodigal son. He said, picture in your mind that moment when the sun hits rock bottom and he's there feeding the pigs and eating the pig food and he begins to think, my servants, my father's servants don't have it this bad. I should go home. And this guy said, imagine that in that moment he's not alone. Imagine that there's another man there with him and this other man is keeping the pigs and eating the food as well, but this other man plans to stay. And he looks down on the prodigal for wanting to return home. And he despises the prodigal for going home to his father. And sneering, he calls the son a weak, worthless coward for returning home. That's the end of those who run from the light and life that we have in Christ. It's a picture of where it leads. That's a, also a segue into false religion and its fruits. And we see this in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Apparently at this time, exorcism was... A money-making business. I don't know how big it was. But there was a market. And Luke tells us that seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. They were itinerant exorcists. They just traveled around attempting to cast out evil spirits. And they saw the success that Paul was having. And they saw the power that accompanied his preaching and the power that came in the name of Jesus. And they thought, you know, we should appropriate that. This this name, Jesus, this, this must be a magical name with special power. Let's use it. 
and make some money. It's clear to see what they're doing. And it's something we see at times in ourselves. And when we do, we need to be quick to repent. What they're doing is they want a Jesus they can use. A Jesus that is a means to an end. And that end being fame and fortune. They aren't looking for a savior. They aren't recognizing him as Lord. They're saying, how can I use this name to get what I want? And this is the false religion. God is a means to an end, not the end himself. And we see that it is hollow, it is shallow, and it is worthless. So these seven young men set out to find a man who is possessed by an evil spirit. And they succeed. They invite themselves into his house. One of them clears his throat to make sure he speaks this new word of power clearly. He says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Come out. Leave this man. Evil spirit. And what happens? Something that would have been terrifying for them, I'm sure. I I imagine this man hearing their words and then turning and looking at them and then saying, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This was a movie. I I, I just imagine this would be like the slow motion moment where the brothers look at each other and one of them goes, oh, no. (laughs) What have we gotten ourselves into? And before we go on, let's talk about this man's words. He says, Jesus, I know. This is nothing new. How many times in the Gospels do demons identify Jesus by name? In Luke 4, a demon cries out, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons recognize their mortal enemy. This is obviously not saving knowledge. James says that demons know things about God and they shudder. This demon knows Jesus. And he also says he'd heard of Paul. He says, Paul, I recognize. Apparently, there was a wanted, a, a wanted poster in hell with Paul's face on it and said something like, this man is causing trouble for us. This man is bringing the light of our great enemy into our darkness and driving us back. Beware of him. He he'd recognized Paul's name. But then he says, who are you? I know Jesus. I recognize the name of Paul, but who are you? You have no power 
here. And then in verse 16 we read, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The seven sons of Sceva receive exactly, they receive the very thing they were wanting to do. They wanted to walk in there and drive this evil spirit out of this man. But instead, he drives them out of the house. We see a demonstration of the very real power of these evil spirits. You have one man who is able to overpower seven desperate young men. And he beats them, claws them, bites them, rips their garments off. And they're so desperate to get out of the house, they come streaking out completely naked. Now, when I've read this in the past, I've always just kind of chuckled at the naked comment and seen that that's just a side effect of the, the beating that they took. But there's, there's some importance here. And so I wanted to talk about the theology of nakedness. Because it would probably be the same in our day, but especially in their culture. The fact that they were nude, that was way worse than them being injured. That, that's what was humiliating. It, it wasn't the fact that they had a black eye or scratches or cuts. It was the fact that they had no clothes. And the reason is that having your nakedness exposed, especially in this, this Jewish culture with all the weight we have in the Old Testament, it was the highest form of shame and humiliation. Think about all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Before the fall in the garden, the man and his wife are naked and what? Unashamed. And then sin comes into the world. Separation from God comes. Death comes as a result of sin. And what do they do? They cover themselves with leaves. They hear the sound of God approaching them in the garden and they hide. They're afraid because they're naked. And so they hide in some bushes. And as you trace this topic through the rest of Scripture, you'll see that having your nakedness exposed is connected to shame and humiliation and even condemnation and death. In Deuteronomy 28, God lays out the curses for disobedience to his law, to his commands. And he goes through this long list of curses. And then in verse 45, we have kind of a summary statement. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything, he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. 
Nakedness is one of the consequences to judgment of their covenant unfaithfulness. We think about the words of Job that we read a few weeks ago. What's the first thing he says after everything is just stripped away from him? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. He feels utterly exposed and vulnerable, left with nothing. Everything has been stripped away and he's in despair. In Isaiah, there's a prophecy against Babylon. The Lord is going to judge the ungodly nation of Babylon. This is Isaiah 47. He says, and listen to the language here. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. This, of course, carries over into the New Testament because the Bible is one book. It is one story. In Revelation 3, the Lord Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So this long little aside is just pointing to the fact that the the nakedness of these Jewish exorcists is much more than them simply losing their clothing in a fight. It is an indictment of their false religion. Their, Their shame and guilt is being exposed. This is a judgment upon them. And it's a warning for all of us, isn't it? It's a warning for those who trust in their own power. A warning for those for whom Christ is simply a means to an end. And we know that if we are honest, this is something we fear as well. Being exposed, having our nakedness being uncovered. Being before God. Standing before his judgment seat. And having nowhere to hide. But there is good news. There are scriptures that speak of nakedness in another way. And maybe you've read this before and you never really made the connection. For those who would cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, cover me. There is a promise that you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded or humiliated or condemned. 
the end, uh, near the end of Romans 8. Most all of us have read Romans 8. We're familiar with it. We read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I know you've read Romans 8 before, and maybe you've wondered at times, why is nakedness included on that list? Paul is saying, through the work of Christ, because of the salvation he has wrought, we will never be ashamed. We will never have our nakedness uncovered Our disgrace will never be seen. We will never face the vengeance of a holy God. And so put all your trust in him and he will clothe you with his righteousness. I want to end with a stanza from a hymn that I quote all the time. You've heard it before. This time I'm going to place the emphasis on a different line. We're reminded that in Jesus Christ, not only are we forgiven and not condemned, but we are given fresh, new, spotless clothing to cover our shame and guilt. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Heavenly Father, what a promise we have in Jesus Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who will condemn? What on earth could possibly separate us from the love that is ours in Christ Jesus? Father, there is nothing. Not even our own guilt and shame and disgrace. For he covers it. So Father, would we be those who flee to him for covering? 
Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth. Father, would he be all our trust? Would he be all our hope and our joy and our life? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.